The title of this morning's message is The True Israel of God. This morning I want to talk to you about the identity of the true Israel of God. Is national Israel the true Israel of God? Are they still God's covenant people? Or are the believers in Jesus Christ God's covenant people? Does God have two covenant peoples? <laughs> How does this work exactly? <laughs> Just exactly who is the true Israel of God? This question has caused ongoing vehement debates <laughs> between dispensational theologians and preterist theologians. Dispensational theologians are looking for the secret rapture of the church, the building of another Jewish temple, and a seven-year worldwide tribulation just before the physical return of Christ. And preterist theologians believe that the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled in its entirety in A.D. 70. I currently don't believe that everything has been accomplished. My beliefs are classified as partial preterist. And that's because I still believe <laughs> in the physical return of Jesus. I do believe that the book of Revelation was pointing to something that happened exactly 40 years after the cross, just like Jesus predicted. And that that was when the Roman armies destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the Jewish temple, and eliminated the sacrificial system. It's been over 2,000 years, and they still don't have another temple. They still don't have a sacrificial system. What makes me a partial preterist is that I actually believe in the physical return of Christ. And I also believe that this whole natural world will not go up in flames, <laughs> but will be born again when Jesus and heaven physically come to earth and the dead are physically raised. But many dispensationalists teach that God has everlasting promises to national Israel that have not yet been fulfilled. So they believe God must still be honoring the Mosaic Covenant for national Israel, and that national Israel is the true Israel of God. But what does the scripture actually say about the true Israel of God? This is a really good question, <laughs> and not just uh, because of the different views of eschatology. But it's actually the, the same question the early church asked when Gentiles started getting saved. What makes Israel Israel? In other words, what makes someone part of God's covenant people? Well, if you weren't born Jewish, it had always meant you had to forsake all your other gods and become, quote-unquote, Jewish, which included participation in circumcision, sacrifices, and law-keeping. The Gentiles had always been able to become part of national Israel and be included in God's covenant. They just didn't want to. <laughs> so when Gentiles started believing in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God, the saved Jews automatically assumed that becoming Jewish was the logical outcome. You hear a lot of that today. <laughs> Many Messianic churches are trying to make Christians more Jewish. 
if converts believed in Yahweh as God and Jesus as the Messiah, then in their minds, the logical outcome is that you should become Jewish. You should become part of national Israel, who was the only nation to ever have a covenant with the one true and living God. So the Apostle Paul had to address this idea of becoming a true Jew by keeping the law and by being circumcised. And we can see this in Romans chapter 2, beginning with verse 17. I have it for you in the ESV version. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on, on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. <laughs> you who? National Israel. This is a really hard thing to say to somebody. You make God look bad. <laughs> Verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a true Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I, of course, added the word true there in the sentence, since it is definitely implied about what God constitutes as being truly Jewish versus being genealogically Jewish. Here, the Apostle Paul is explaining to his readers, both Jew and Gentile, that many who call themselves true Jews are not what God would call a true Jew. Could it be that it's the same today? God could see all men's hearts as well as their actions. And for the most part, in the Old Testament, <laughs> Old Testament Israel's heart was always far from him, even when their mouths professed loudly allegiance. In other words, Paul is saying that an unbelieving and disobedient Israelite was really no better off than a Gentile in the sight of God, because both were guilty of sin and both were in need of a Savior. So this particular statement was meant to be very humbling, if not irritating, <laughs> to Paul's Jewish audience, who might have erroneously believed that being part of national Israel automatically made them approved of by God, and inheritors of the promises. 
to understand just how startling this would sound to them. Imagine the Apostle Paul telling all the Republicans, y'all need to become Democrats to make God happy. <laughs> Everything inside of a Republican would scream, not on your life. <laughs> and that's because the Jews had an identity as being God's very own special possession. And everybody else in the world was unclean and unworthy. So the Jews, and this is what Paul's doing, he, he needs them to see themselves in a new light in order to enter into the new covenant. They needed to see themselves as just as unclean and just as unworthy as the Gentiles. And that truth was often just too hard for many of the Jewish people to swallow. For us today, regarding identity, it would probably be like a Republican saying, I'm a Christian because I'm a Republican. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to us, right? <laughs> we should be saying, I'm a Republican because I'm a Christian. I identify with the same values. But this is what it was like for Paul. He had Jews who were saying, I'm of God. I'm the true Israel because I was born Jewish. <laughs> I'm of God because I keep the law, even though they were really bad at keeping the law. <laughs> the first statement here assumes that an individual identity, I'm a Christian, by having an association with a certain group. It's not a personal identity. It's not something they really are. It's just something they identify with. Boy, we could go there. <laughs> Whereas the second statement aligns one values with a certain group based on the identity as a new creation in Christ. The Jews, both then and now, need to find their identity in their faith in Christ, not in their biological or national association. Because for God, being included in one of his covenants was always a matter of the heart and not of genealogy. God has always dealt with his people based on their faith in him. Even under the old covenant, salvation was by faith in God's provided grace. In God's grace, God had chosen Israel. That was a grace. He didn't have to choose Israel <laughs> to be his instrument, to bring forth the Messiah, to bring forth salvation. It was a grace. God chose them as his special possession for a special purpose. He did not choose them for salvation. He chose them because they would bring forth true salvation. Being Israel did not assure you of an afterlife. Many of them didn't even believe in one. So, in God's grace, he chose Israel to become the one and only nation through which he would display his righteous character and his loving kindness and power through a covenantal relationship with them. And as part of that blessing, God provided Israel with a grace that would allow them to live in the blessing of God instead of under the constant power of sin and death. And that grace was the sin management system of sacrifices. And yes, that was still a grace. <laughs> God didn't owe them a way, a system to live under his blessing and power and goodness. 
He didn't owe anybody anything. <laughs> but he chose to use them to display who he was as best as they could understand him. So he gave them this system that would allow them to see him in his goodness and his power and his love and his faithfulness. And it was given to them as a grace because God wanted Israel to be able to know him in covenantal relationship. Under the old covenant, Israel could know God and his presence. We see that a lot with David, at least, at least to a certain degree. They don't, didn't have what we have, but they could enjoy his blessings. They could live in, in peace and in prosperity. They could know God. They could recognize his presence. And all of that was facilitated for them through this prescribed offerings for sin. But for the individual, bringing their sacrifice was supposed to involve love and faith. They were supposed to be believing by faith that God accepted their lamb in their place and that their sins were covered over by the blood of the lamb. Amen. <laughs> and that atonement, right relationship was restored between them and God, at least until their next sin, <laughs> which was usually just around the corner. <laughs> because they didn't have a way to get out from underneath the power of sin and death. The best they could do was to manage their sin debts through constant sacrifice. So the old covenant sacrificial system was only a temporary solution for their very permanent problem of sin. All of this, of course, foreshadowed what God would one day do through the Lamb of God, who would actually take away the sin of the world. No more sin management. Praise God. The Apostle Paul makes the point that what God recognized as a true Jew was based on faith in the heart of that particular person and not on having faith in being part of national Israel. In fact, the Apostle Paul did not believe that all the Jewish people of his time were still able to be saved by the Old Covenant and by keeping his laws and sacrifices. I don't know why so many Christian leaders say that national Israel still has an operating covenant with God apart from faith in Jesus, <laughs> but they do. I don't understand it because according to Paul, they clearly don't. And neither did the Apostle Paul believe that all humans were automatically saved because of Jesus apart from believing on Jesus themselves. That idea is called inclusionism, and it's gaining in popularity. Everybody's saved, they just don't know it. But that's not what the Apostle Paul taught. We can see Paul's heart and his anguish over the condition of the unbelieving Jews in Romans chapter 9. I have it for you in the Passion Translation. I'll begin with verse 1 and end with verse 8. This is Paul speaking. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Who are they? Jewish people. <laughs> my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. It all belongs to them. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, 
who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He's saying here that they have so much they could be glorying in. <laughs> and the best part is Christ came from them. They have much to glory in and much to participate in. They have the foundation, but they never built the true temple. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So we could actually say, not all who are descended from Israel are the true Israel. Verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, not the children of the biological or the genealogical Jewish nation who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So we can see here that natural, national Israel, according to the flesh, is not considered by God to be the true Israel of God. Being the true Israel of God was a matter of faith, not a matter of genealogy. So, then who is the true Israel of God? Technically, Jesus is. <laughs> Jesus, as God's Son, represents not just all mankind, but even more specifically, all Israel as well. And we can see this in Matthew's narrative, of the birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, in verses 13 through 15, it says this, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So Matthew here recognizes that the original prophet, which was Hosea, spoke this in context regarding the nation of Israel being delivered from the power of Pharaoh and physically coming out of Egypt, and that it's God himself who refers to the nation of Israel as his son. But here Matthew tells us that it was a prophetic hint that the perfect son, the Messiah, that he would come and he would represent all of Israel, obedient and disobedient Israel on the cross. The first time God refers to Israel as his son is found in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 21 and then in verse 23, and it says this, And Yahweh said unto Moses, when thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. People get uh, all kinds of strange ideas about this particular uh, verse with the word harden. The word harden here paints a picture of something that's being strengthened, that something that is already there is strengthened. God is responsible for strengthening what was already there in Pharaoh's heart. 
But God doesn't go around making people's hearts hard against him. It is their own pride that hardens their heart. So when God offered Pharaoh the opportunity to let his people go, Pharaoh had to decide to either relent and acknowledge that he himself wasn't actually God, <laughs> and that the people weren't actually his, <laughs> or he could let his own selfish pride and stupidity make him choose something that in the long run God would be glorified through. It wasn't actually God's desire for Pharaoh to harden his heart against Israel. That wasn't what he wanted. He just happened to know that that was what was going to take place. When we think about God, quote-unquote, hardening somebody, it's not something God says, okay, you, you don't get to believe. It's people who've already decided not to believe. Each time there was a plague, God offered him an out. Take this out. Take this out. Take this out. But he said he knew by offering it, he would harden Pharaoh's heart. It was something Pharaoh was doing to himself, but he was doing it to him because with every opportunity to repent, if we don't take it, we harden our own heart. So God doesn't go around making people's hearts hard. <laughs> it's just that God in his kindness and goodness, he keeps offering people, <laughs> come to me, come to me, come to me. And every time they say no, they harden their heart more and more. They lose the sensitivity to God's voice. So Pharaoh chose his own pride and stupidity. Because pride always makes you stupid. <laughs> makes you choose stupid stuff. Exodus 4.22 And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. What I want you to see is that God calls Israel his firstborn son, the whole nation. Again, this helps us to see that Jesus, as the only begotten son, represents not just all of mankind, but all of Israel in particular. God so loved Israel, and God still so loves Israel. But Old Covenant Israel, for the most part, didn't love God in return. But God had a plan to rescue them, and not just from Pharaoh, but from themselves. <laughs> The scripture that Matthew quoted in chapter 2 is found in Hosea, chapter 11, and verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. The context of Hosea 11.1 1 is that God is lamenting about how his beloved son Israel has run amok with sin and has continued to break his covenant and his heart. <laughs> Here God appears to fondly remember how much he enjoyed them when they were little, when they first came out of Israel, out of Egypt. They were so excited to have a relationship with God. As a parent, I kind of chuckle to myself when I read this scripture. It kind of reminds me of me when my kids were teenagers. 
I would think you were so much easier when you were little. <laughs> you were cute and chubby, and I could put you in the playpen and keep you from hurting yourself. <laughs> Sounds like God to me. <laughs> he wanted to put them in the playpen. Unfortunately, the best he could do was call captivity. <laughs> he just wanted them to stop hurting themselves. So for Israel, going into captivity was kind of like the playpen where God could put them in one place and keep them from destroying themselves and keep other people from destroying them as well. But of course, he couldn't keep them in there forever. <laughs> so we find more hints, even in the book of Hosea, about his plan. I'll start reading in chapter 5, beginning with verse 15, and end in chapter 6, verse 4. This is God speaking. I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. God's saying, bad stuff is coming because you've been sowing <laughs> things you're not going to like when you reap. And when the reaping begins, then you'll get a clue <laughs> that you should seek me early and come back to me. And they did for about one minute. <laughs> In the next verse, Israel speaks, chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. Who, what? <laughs> that he may heal us. He has struck us down, that he will bind us up. Does this sound like Israel's taking responsibility for their sin? <laughs> They're reaping some really bad stuff, and suddenly it's all God's fault. He just wants to make us better, so he'll hurt us first. No. <laughs> but God will use whatever we do. <laughs> Verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. They fell back in love with God for about two minutes. <laughs> but somewhere in those two minutes, <laughs> he had hidden this hint as to how he was planning to get them to the place where they actually could live in his presence, and know him for themselves, and love him forever. Then in verse 4, God responds, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? <laughs> Your love is like a morning cloud, the dew that goes early away. <laughs> Two minutes, we're over. <laughs> All covenant Israel seems to have been a little ADD. <laughs> they don't appear to be able to pay attention for more than about two seconds. One minute they're professing their love for God, and the next they were off worshiping idols yet again. But God knew what he would do with Ephraim and Judah. God knew, oh Ephraim, what should I do with you? And he had a plan, a plan to redeem Israel back to himself 
the same way he would redeem all of mankind. The perfect son, the faithful son, the obedient son, the loving son, the son of promise would die on behalf of the son with ADD (laughs) and provide them with an extraordinarily gracious new covenant of grace that would give them the ability to have a brand new identity. Israel needs a new identity as sons of God, not just sons of Israel. God wanted them to become new creations, and they would be able to have a brand new spiritual Israel raised from the dead and free from its obligations to the first covenant. This is really important. Israel cannot be in covenant with God apart from Christ. And Paul tells us why. Uh, Paul begins in verse 1 by saying that he is speaking to those who know the law. That's the point. (laughs) I'll begin with verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Again, Paul is directly saying, pay attention, you Jewish brethren, you law keepers, you ones who want to make everybody else follow the law. (laughs) He's trying to get them to see what God has really accomplished on their behalf through Jesus. Verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, my Jewish genealogical Jewish brothers, you also have died to the law, to the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. This would be like telling a Democrat, (laughs) you've been made a Republican! (laughs) Would they be happy about that? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) They'd need Jesus first. (laughs) These brothers are Jewish. And they are the ones who needed to hear this message the most. The Gentiles didn't even have the law. The Gentiles were never under the law. At least not until some very nice Jewish men convinced them that keeping the law was how they could please God. (laughs) Been there, done that. No thanks. (laughs) I do want to add a side note here. Paul very clearly tells us that the knowledge of sin comes from the law. And sin didn't stop being sinful. (laughs) Sin still produces death and destruction. So the law is helpful for understanding what God deems as sinful. And my point is that we don't just throw the Old Testament out because we're not under the law for righteousness. It's still full of the wisdom of God and all the types and shadows of Jesus. (laughs) But for believers, our righteousness is a gift that is worked out into our lives as fruit from the Holy Spirit within us. 
For example, abortion. Does God think abortion is a good idea? Of course not. <laughs> and how do we know that? Because the Old Covenant Scriptures tell us that. So as believers, we don't indulge in abortion if we get ourselves in an inappropriate situation <laughs> because we live out of our relationship with God, who is himself love. And love does not kill. And God's love doesn't condemn the young lady who finds herself in that situation. He just knows that abortion is even a greater sin, that it would do even more damage than the sin that caused her to be in that situation. God is love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and compassion. His laws were not meant to keep people from having fun, but to keep people well and healthy and happy. The problem was the people were broken. <laughs> the law was perfect, but the people were broken. So the law, even though it's good and perfect, it just wasn't good as a husband. <laughs> they needed a different husband. Verse 5. But while we were living in flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Our flesh was the problem all along. Verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we would serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Telling Jewish people you have been released from the law. You would think they would be so ecstatic. But it was like with Pharaoh. They said, we don't want to be released from the law. We're special because of the law. In fact, I watched a video clip this week of a Jewish rabbi explaining why Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. He said, Jesus abrogates the law. It means to dismiss. He says, a true Messiah would never get rid of the law. Jesus didn't get rid of it. He fulfilled it. He didn't want to talk about all the signs and shadows that are available throughout the entire Old Covenant. He wanted to say, this is not the kind of Messiah we're looking for. Therefore, he's false. Stubborn and prideful. We are true Israel, not you. And who were these people he was talking to? The Jews! <laughs> the law keepers! <laughs> It's like when I came into the message of grace, I found I didn't have to be a law keeper. I could just be a Jesus lover. <laughs> and he would do the works in me and through me. Yep, Paul is saying that Israel is released from the old covenant. Because in Christ, all of Israel died and then was raised to new life in Christ. It is a finished work even for them. And of course, just like under the Old Covenant, each individual is responsible for their own faith. God has given to every man the measure of faith, and each person must receive Christ and his new covenant through that faith. So the answer to the question, who is the true Israel, is Jesus is the true Israel. And 
those who are in Jesus, <laughs> whether they're Jew or Gentile, are now spiritually Israel. But only in the sense that Christians are now the only ones participating in the covenant with the one true and living God. Christians are the only ones who are currently in covenant with God because the old covenant went into death. Israel went into death with that covenant. There is only one covenant available to the Jewish people today. And it's not the one made at Sinai. It's the one made at Calvary. God is not going to allow his precious Jewish people to become adulterers. This is what the church is doing. They're saying, let us help you build a temple. Let us help you get all those um, little sheep and lambs and heifers and everything else. Let us help you go back to the law. Let us help you be adulterers because God does not recognize that covenant and there's no salvation in it. There's only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved and that name is Jesus, not Israel. We are not blessed because Israel is blessed by Christians. <laughs> we are blessed because Jesus is Israel and Jesus is our blessing. And those who bless the one true and living Israel are blessed. They can't be anything other than blessed. <laughs> the church is doing crazy stuff, trying to get the Jewish people to go back to being Israel under the old covenant. They don't recognize they're actually trying to help them to become adulterers in the eyes of God, instead of telling them the truth, in love, in goodness, in compassion, there is no salvation there. That's the book of Hebrews. You can't go back. That covenant died. It's not in operation. And this second covenant, <laughs> the last covenant, will be forever. There's no getting out. <laughs> There's no getting out. God loves the nation of Israel. He loves the nation of Israel. And God has not cast them away. But neither is there another covenant whereby they can be saved. God is not going to tell them to go back to an obsolete covenant with obsolete sacrifices that never actually worked in the first place. <laughs> the old covenant cannot give anybody life. The law cannot give anyone life. That was what was wrong with it. Only Jesus can give us the very life of God. So, like the Apostle Paul, we would do well to pray for Israel, that their eyes would be open to the truth contained and hidden in their own scriptures, that they would experience the love and the power of God through the Holy Spirit, through the thousands of believers who visit Israel. All people, including all the Jewish people, are invited to partake of God's everlasting life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. There's only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved. That name is Jesus, not Israel. Amen? Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father God, that you love all people. We thank you, Father God, that you love Democrats and you love Republicans. You love those who know you and you love those who don't know you. Father God, you love us even though sometimes we align ourselves with different groups and we think that's who we are. 
We thank you, Father God, that the Holy Spirit is continuing to open our eyes to our true identity and the true identity of others. Father God, we do pray for Israel. We do pray, Father God, that you would work wonders and miracles again in the land of Israel so that those who are there, who are looking for their Messiah, because so many of them are, that their eyes would be open to the truth that there is only one name under heaven whereby any man can be saved. And that name is Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.